Vanessa. Hello, Adam. First of all, welcome to Uncertain Things. This is the, the podcast where we commiserate together about the state of the world. Today, we actually don't have anybody. We are uh, uh, being had by Kyle Huber. <laughs> that sounds weirdly sexual. <laughs> not, not in the biblical sense, but the podlical sense. The, the, the podlical sense? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the podcastical sense. So Kyle Huber had us in the podlical sense on, on his podcast, The adventure creator podcast he is a lovely bloke who has been listening to uncertain things for a while and uh, also happens to create his own pod about people passionate about their work apparently we have exhibited some signs of unbridled passion in in previous episodes i think i think that might be a conflation of passion and, and rage but I, I did not protest, and um, we we did a little Zoom with him a few weeks ago to discuss our work, the pod, some of the lessons that we have been gathering over the past year, and and our origin story, and generally the the things that just make us tired and pessimistic about existence. So he published it, and you can find it on his stream, which you, which you should follow on the Adventure Creator Podcast. But also he allowed us to share the episode as published here on our stream. So this is this is what it is. This is a little bonus episode that just guest stars Kyle's pod with us. And the timing is fun because we are coming close to our one year anniversary as as a podcast. And that's awesome. And to celebrate it, we're gonna publish next week an interview that I had Uh, recorded when I was in Israel with Tomer Persico, who, as longtime listeners of the pod know, was our very first guest. And uh, we originally started the conversation with him about the image of God and how that little germ of an idea evolved and shaped the discourse of liberal Western culture. And last month, I had a chance to, to catch up with him and see how his, his book is doing and get a little more granular. So if you like that big picture philosophical conversations, you've got something to look forward to next week. But for now, we're going to share with you that little bonus episode from Kyle's podcast. Um, and we apologize, we recorded it over Zoom. And as you'll notice, it's not with our normal equipment. So we, we apologize to that. That's definitely on us. That's all my all on me. I forgot my microphone that day. And so that is just podcasters number one sin. I apologize for that. Yeah, as I mentioned on previous episodes, Vanessa is currently traveling the East Coast on many an adventure. So adventure creator that she is. <laughs> I can't wait to be home, by the way. Back at you. So without further ado, follow us on uncertain.substack.com, wherever you get your podcast. If you feel kindly, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It gives us the chance to reach more people. That's awesome when it happens. And uh, yeah, and, and if you're feeling materially generous, you can also support us on Patreon. With that, oh, and we're on certain pod on the social media, which which doesn't matter because we hate social media. Okay, with that, Kyle and uh, I guess us. Us. More us. <laughs> Welcome to the Adventure Creator Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Huber. Today, I get the opportunity to interview two self 
Untitled Jaded Journos and the hosts of the Uncertain Things podcast to learn uh, all about their background and what actually drove them to start a podcast centered around uncertain things. Uh, basically, the premise of their podcast is everything's broken, now what? So, you know, in, in the news, everywhere you look, it seems like there's issues and it's so uh, overwhelming sometimes to actually ask the question of like, okay, so what are we going to do about it? And uh, what, what I love about Adam and Vanessa is that they push back on their guests. They, first of all, find fantastic guests to host on their show who are experts in their field. Um, but they have just extremely thoughtful and insightful questions, commentary around things that I have a hard time sometimes articulating how I feel about. So long story short, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I wish we could have talked for another two hours. I hope that there's a, a part two, a round two with the Dom and Vanessa at some point down the road. But in the meantime, you can listen to them. You can definitely, I would recommend subscribing on Substack, which if you haven't heard of it, is an alternative platform uh, based around just like sharing information and not censoring it. That's kind of what I'm understanding is Substack's a place where you can actually maybe uh, articulate your or uh, exercise your First Amendment, your right to free speech. So we talk about we talk about that. We talk about right the the importance of free speech, what role the individual has in parsing through information to make their own informed decisions, to what extent the two party system limits uh, government's effectiveness. And I think, you know, kind of the punchline or the theme of the entire conversation can be summed up with something that Vanessa brought up, which is a question, why do we fight for a liberal democracy? Why do we think it's the best system? And Vanessa goes into why that's a super important question that she has brought up with a lot of their guests. So all that to get out of the way, finally, and introduce Adam and Vanessa of the Uncertain Things podcast. Here we go. Adam and Vanessa, welcome to the show. It's a fantastic uh, opportunity to talk to you both. Thank you Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't believe um, the, the randomness of coming across your podcast because I was just, you know, I, I very rarely do like the browse or the like yeah. explore tab in Apple Podcasts. And for some reason, one day, maybe the algorithms knew I was into uncertain things. And so that uh, your guys' podcast popped up there um, and I read a few reviews. I thought it sounded cool. And uh, I think you have 35 episodes now and I've listened to a handful of them and um, highly suggest, I just, I love your guys' podcast and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit first just about each of your individual backgrounds for some context on where you're both coming from because I do think our upbringings really inform our perspectives on the world and our ability to cope with uncertainty and, and deal with ambivalence. So um, maybe Vanessa, you start and uh, I'd love to hear a little, what was life sure. like growing up? Oh, what was life like growing up? Um, I grew up in Long Island, New York, suburb of the city. I uh, grew up to a Northern Irish dad and a Peruvian mother. Um, and so even though I grew up on Long Island, I was definitely not of the Long Island culture, which I think is, you know, kind of, I feel like common for a lot of people who go into like writing and media when you're not exactly fitting in, you find ways to observe, <laughs> observe and comment. Um, but yeah, so I grew up on Long Island, uh, went to school in DC, um, ended up living in Chile for a few years, which was pretty formative for me. 
Um, and then while I was living in Chile, I decided I wanted to get into journalism. I had gotten a job in Chile very, very randomly at an architecture journalism gig. I knew nothing about architecture and I knew very little about journalism, but I just, they just hired me because I spoke English and I started like writing long form essays every week. Um, and that's how I kind of got my feet wet into the journalism world. And at some point I was like, well, I'm learning a lot on my own, but I feel like there's more to be learned here. So I applied for journalism school um, and I applied to only one. I applied to Columbia and I was like, well, shot in the dark. If I get in there, it's probably going to look good on my resume. So I should probably do that one. And then I weirdly got in. Um, and so I moved to New York City, met Adam in journalism school. Um, I think we both commiserated a lot about <laughs> uh, how how. Um, interesting experiences. Let's put it there for now. We can put a pin on that and come back to it if you're interested. Um, and then we ended up uh, moving in together. Um, and then that's kind of once I kind of got my my feet wet and was starting to enter the journalism world in New York City, I kind of started carving this niche for myself in kind of like cities journalism. Um, and I got a few jobs. I got a design magazine. And uh, for the last few years, I've been working at a uh, urban tech company, making their podcast for them. It's called City of the Future. Um, and I got a chance to work with um, Benjamin Walker and Andrew Calloway of the Theory of Everything podcast, who are two awesome guys. And they taught me a lot about podcasting. Um, and since then, I've kind of been uh, really trying to make more and more podcasts. And that's the thing that I'm, I am most focused on and interested in for my professional did you mention having written the actual book about podcasting history? There, I had a brief uh, moonlighting gig, I guess, after journalism school where I applied for um, like a fellowship thing from um, the Brown. Oh, gosh, I've already forgotten what it is. Brown Institute. The Brown Institute. It's like affiliated with Columbia. And I just asked them if they would give me money to study the history of the podcasting industry. And they said, yeah. Why not? No one had really done it at the time. That was like 2015. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got to compile this little like small, small history of where podcasting had been in the past, and where it was going in the future in terms of its business models, which I think is always fundamental to whenever you're thinking about where a content form is going. Um, and that was a really fascinating project, but it's hopelessly out of date. It's only, you know, oh God age seven years later or six years later um and it's already like the industry is so different now but yeah i mean that was kind of one of the things that i did early on before i actually got into making podcasts because i just kind of wanted to understand the ecosystem but, but, of you're, but you're underselling how how funny that moment was because first of all i was there when she pitched that the head of the brown institute was was sitting there and she like her eyes were lit up like this is incredible like her tau center i remember tau center oh, oh, sorry, the, tau center. Right, right. the tau center yeah that's what it was the Brown Center is for Innovation, Tau Center is yes. for Research, right? Yes. Nobody has taken podcasts at that point seriously as, as a new medium storytelling, even though, you know, at this point, like podcasting was becoming super popular with serial. So it was like, it was no longer a niche format, but right. it was still not being really discussed or studied in a serious way. During that research, I remember Vanessa was constantly getting like calls and, and approaches from, from people who were like, you know, the pioneers of, of podcasting, each of them wanting to make sure that, that, that their name is inscribed in history because this was the first time that a scribe was coming to collect all the names who have created this movement. And people were like, I was there first. I officially recorded myself on a tape recorder and sent it through mail. Anyway, it was, it was a really funny moment yeah. because there was really, there was no proper history of it. 
I didn't realize how controversial the origins of podcasting is, but there's a lot, there's a lot of <laughs> infighting about who was in there first, but yes, that, it was a really interesting project. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, but yeah, it was, like, cool. it was a really cool, cool project. That- so you, you were a gatekeeper for the, the podcasting industry early on is what I'm hearing. Uh, no, 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 not at all. But I was like, I was at least someone that was like, Hey, this is, we should be taking stock of what's happening here because it has the potential to be huge. And I think, I mean, at that point it wasn't like, I was already coming in pretty late on the bandwagon. I mean, serial has, you know, had been around for like a year or so. So like that had, that, I think that was a really pivotal moment in podcasting history. Also just having the app on your, on the, uh, when Apple made the p- app, podcast app, like native to that phone, that was also a pivotal turning point. Um, so it was like, it was an interesting moment to like stop and take stock. Um, but I definitely, I mean, I made some conjectures about where it was going, but I don't think I could have anticipated the extent to which there'd be this proliferation of networks coming out and this proliferation of, um, different types of shows and content production and like the Spotify is getting in there. So it's, I mean, I would love to like do part two of that study to be honest. Cause I think that, I think what's happening in the podcasting world is pretty, pretty fascinating. I'll be really interested to see where it goes. Yeah, and I'd also love. Yeah, go ahead, Adam. No, I was just. I'm just, and I'm also wondering because there's now a lot of of what I would call probably like some sinister or like crypto sinister conversations about about regulating the podcasting industry. And and you know, remember we were talking in one of our conversations with Matt Welch, and there was just this um, um, headline about uh, I, I don't remember exactly the headline, but it was something like podcasting is one of the last forms in which yeah. controversial ideas get through or, or you know, stuff, stuff like that, which constantly implies that there is a push from the actual uh, gatekeepers, traditional gatekeepers, to find a way to limit the ability of people, say, like Tom Cotton, for instance, to have his own podcast, or at least to be able to say whatever he wants on podcasting and for, for you know, um, servers to be holding them. And this is kind of scary, but if, <laughs> if there's a future to this, then maybe you should wait like five 10 more years to see what happens and then write your like the death of podcasting. I think another technology that will also be really like transformative uh, kind of for the reasons that Adam's hinting at is the transcription um, and like AI and like automatically generating transcriptions. Because I think part of the reason why podcasting feels kind of special and hidden is that when you don't have the the kind of visual written traces, I guess, Hmm. of the conversation, it feels a bit more ethereal and, and kind of can fly under the radar. Who knows how much hate speech is floating around (laughs) in around minute 47 of this conversation. Who gets that far? Let alone like, like you said, finding podcasts. It's like, it's pretty like, it's like a small miracle that you found us on Apple podcasts browsing. Cause like how that feels, at least to me, it's like a rare way to to find a podcast these days. So, but also to be fair, the people who are searching for hate speech and everything, they they hear hmm. they hear like they're they're very progressive in their listening. They, in a, in a, <laughs> progressive in the sense of the professional way. Like they will they they, they listen for for hate speech jazz. It's like it's what you didn't say. <laughs> the between the lines. The between yeah. the lines. I agree that podcasting, uh, you know, it has a, there's a certain uh, I guess like use for it, right? And I think one of the like cr- most powerful things about it is the ability to have these longer form discussions where you can hash things out in more than 140, 280 characters. And if we have a disagreement, I can clarify myself and you can like see my face here, at least on this video call and be like, okay, I see his intentions. He might be dead wrong about this, but his intentions are coming from a good place. I always love to have conversations about controversial or uncertain things. Um, and I don't think 
it, it, and I, you I do wanna, know that you need to pay us for every time you mention the name. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, or we should all take royalty. a shot, one or the other. But basically, yeah. And, and Adam, I also want to get, get a little bit of context on your background because when I travel abroad, I'm able to have more open discussions with people. People are like, so what do you think about politics in the US? Like they'll literally ask you that and you can expound for a couple minutes and they'll listen and uh, then share their opinion and it's super healthy. In the US, it's like, why are you talking about that? You know, and it's, it's almost cliche to have meaningful discussions about politics. Where, um, and so I'd be interested to hear like Adam coming from not growing up in the US um, and then walk me from your childhood and then up to the point where you call yourself jaded journalists. I love that term. <laughs> Um, and I kind of want to understand, like, how did you guys end up identifying as a little bit outside of this, like, I don't know how you want to call it, mainstream narrative ideology conglomeration of just like following sort of what's uh, what's set up. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. But yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I'll start with the thing that you didn't actually intend for me to to latch onto, but you just said about not being able to have conversations in the U.S. and and more freely outside of it. I think I. I I understand what you were referring to. And I do think that historically, I felt a lot more freedom having conversations about things and, and having, you know, heterodoxical ideas outside of the US. Um, I think there's something slightly moving. I don't, I don't know. I can't, I can't put my finger in it quite yet. But I've, I've, I've met with a bunch of Americans recently that, that from, you know, areas that I, I did not expect to be, you know, the hotbeds of, open thinking and creative discussion. And I think something about the hyper pressure of the past couple of years in the US has made Americans like start abandoning the idea of let's not talk about politics during Thanksgiving, you know, that the politics and money, those are the things that you don't talk about. And I think this is changing in a way that maybe right now it's still trying to find the right degree and we're still negotiating what's what's tolerable. But but I don't know. I think I think something is moving in an interesting way because I've, I've heard a lot of families where you have one kid who is very much like Blue Lives Matter and parent who is very Black Lives Matter. They are trying to find ways to not hate each other, but they also, neither of them find it tolerable to not talk about what they believe. So they have to develop a new social strategy that just did not exist historically in the US, not in the 20th century at least, to talk about the issues. And I think potentially that's a good thing. While in you know the the world that I've seen, which is the the Middle East and Europe, there is somewhat of a regression when it comes to the to, to those things. When I think that they've adopt, there's an adoption of some of the worst memes in American culture, conversational memes. There's an Urzitz attempt in definitely in Israel, and I'm seeing it in Europe too, to kind of imitate the the progressive language and the restraining power of American elites. Because that seems cool, that seems trendy, that seems where the power is. And the imitation of that is no less dangerous than the original. So anyway, my, my story. Um, I was born in New York. Um, my parents met at NYU and I was born here. Uh, but my mom uh, is Israeli and they separated at a pretty young age. I grew up with her and my grandparents in a lovely neighborhood in Jerusalem. And that's the landscape of my youth. I don't know what you know about Jerusalem, but when it comes to perspectives, there is certainly a diversity of them. It's very difficult to go about your day without getting into an argument about something with someone. It's a combination of being in the middle of a very real conflict with a lot of high emotions constantly engaging you. But also, I think there's something about the combination of, I guess it's like the, the 
old Jewish Jerusalemite culture of of studiousness and 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 you know rabbinical argumentation on one hand, and something about the Middle Eastern, maybe even the Mediterranean, very like high tones, high energy, very direct, and you know put all of those together, and you just develop a habit of having an opinion, whether it's justified or not, and then sharing it. And then when somebody cuts you down and tells you you're an idiot, you don't know what you're talking about, you learn to take it and say like, huh, I guess I didn't know what I was talking about. That's kind of cool. And, or to push back. Or, or to, pu- to push back, but to an extent. But I do think that one of the things that you learn from this, most importantly, is the joy of being wrong, being proven wrong, and, or, or understanding when you're being bested. You learn how to take defeat constructively. I was just defeated, but it kind of feels good because now I, I, I know something or experienced a perspective that I did not consider before. Moving to the US, which I did like seven years ago for Columbia, because I, I was working as a writer and an editor in several magazines in Jerusalem. And I and Haaretz was one of them. And I, and I wanted to I don't know. I was writing in English and I was, if I'm writing in English, I, I want to try working with the, an English speaking industry. And that's it. And then from there, I started working at CNN and currently um, working on, uh, on the show Axios and HBO. This is kind of like giving me an, an inside view of how the media industry in, in the US works. It also put me there at a very interesting time, which was 2015, 16, mm-hmm. when basically the world broke and especially the media world, because Throughout the Trump run for office, I was spending most of my days watching his rallies or the shows that I was working on at CNN. I was editing some clips, but but also constantly looking for news. And the interesting thing that I started realizing is that there's a, a real dissonance between the way that most of the people around me are talking about Trump and the way that he is. Like I, I felt like there is a, there there was a, a mold that w- he was being fit into because of all the, the bad vibes that justifiably people were getting from him, but that they were also not paying attention to what he's actually saying or, to, or not even trying to put a real, to make a real effort to understand what his appeal is to, to the thousands of people that were filling up his rallies. We would spend way more time trying to disprove his claim that his rally was full, you know, trying to find those shots of, like, mm. look, that part had a little bald spot, clearly was not full to capacity, Rather than trying to understand, yeah, sure. So maybe it was 2,000 people instead of 3,000 people, but it was still 2,000 people that went there, try to understand what they found in him, why they was probably like 20,000, not 2,000, but try to understand why those 20,000 people were there listening to him give a speech. And, you know, you spend so much time with the guy as I did. And like, you, you get it. Like, you get it. You get when he's making a joke. You get when he's trying to be provocative and he's doing things that are understandably attractive to people and, and hitting their concerns and hitting their uncertainties, hitting their fears in a way that nobody else was. You can also add to that the level that, where you can see totally that it's disingenuous, that he is a manipulator, that he is a demagogue, that he is exploiting those people, that he's I, I would even psychoanalyze and say that he's completely patronizing these people. He's condescending to them. But he was still doing something real. Whatever that was, it was being ignored by all the people that I was working with. That was where I started to feel like this, that there is a dissonance between the reality that we're trying to cover and, and how we're doing our job. The other thing, though, I think that, Adon, that's very fundamental to your story and your pathway to Jaded Journal. Um, is the startup that you tried to, 
to get off the ground. I mean, I think that's a pretty fascinating story that I think is very, I think is a very like proto proto model for uncertain things in some ways. <laughs> At the very least, it's the thing that made me really admire Substack. So for, for a while, <laughs> yeah. I, I was, I was trying after, after around 2018, I joined two other brilliant journalists to try and build a startup that was intended to be the kind of thing that I want in certain things to be, which is like, you know, an, an anti-partisan, ideologically fluid place for, for conversation and for looking at the news in, in a different way and, and hopefully expanding the conversation beyond just the, the narrow lanes that the news tends to slide into. And um, it, it failed. But it well. didn't. But it, wait, it didn't fail because we didn't get an audience. We did get. We were able to get like I think six to eight million monthly readers on the website. But what, where it failed was to make money. Probably if the same if we had the same model three years ago. Sorry, three years before that, before Trump um, came to the came onto the public stage or escalated down to the public stage we would have been able to make a shit ton of money from ads, for instance, easily with that, with these numbers. After Trump, advertisers became more reluctant to, to put their money on any kind of news because there was also this entire like discourse about fake news and Russian bots and all that. So people were becoming very scared. And the only place where money was to be found was either if you're already an established legacy outlet, and even there, the money was, was drying up. But but the New York Times was kind of doing okay. And plus, they had the ability to capitalize on subscriptions. So yeah. they would be fine. And on the other side, if you're so far to one ideological bubble, then you would get advertisers that clearly are trying to get to these people. So if you're 100% leaning to the right, then you'd get money from you know gun companies and anti-abortion groups. And if you're leaning all the way to the left, you would get money from Planned Parenthood or anything that is considered politically toxic. But anything in between, and that meant anything from local news to startups like ours that was trying to do something that is anti-ideological, but also kind of anti-establishment, those things would get nothing. We found ourselves, me and my co-founders, found ourselves at a crossroads where we had to decide, are we going to give up or lean in to an ideology to, to, to be profitable. My, my partners decided to go and let's lean in. And at first I tried to play along with it. At some point I was constantly pulling back and say like, come on, we can't do that. That's way too nasty. That's too ugly. This is what we were trying to fight against. And then they told me you are holding us back, which, which in fairness I was. So we broke ways, you know, that, next to the CNN experience made me see that there, like, between, between established media and an attempt to do something independent, there's really not a lot of chance for at least what I would consider real, open, non-ideological, non-scripted conversations. But then there was Substack. The moment that I saw the first article on Substack, which I think was um, from the, the Dispatch, uh, which is a conservative outlet, that, that decided to create an entire business model around Substack. I was like, I get it. I get it. Like I, I read their mission statement when they first came out. It was by, um, um, what's his name? Um, Stephen Hayes. So, so I, I read Stephen Hayes' statement 
And Stephen Hayes and, and Jonah Goldberg, his co-founder, they, were, they, they both were, you know, old school conservative media figures. They worked in, in big name brands there. So they felt the suffering, the pains that I was describing for years. And then they decided to go all in on the Substack model. And the moment they said it, I was like, I, this is what we need. This is the only way to make sub- slightly subversive news. This is the, uh, the platform that gets it. And I told Vanessa, we should like, you should join me. And also, it coincided with the, with the pandemic, which I don't think we can ignore, right? Like there was a period of time where we were working from home, schedules were crazy, but wanted to explore things that were more meaningful to us. Cause you know, like, you know, your day job kind of be a grind sometimes. And like, I remember it being a conversation of like, let's take this time that we have and let's let's try and dig a bit deeper into the th- issues and topics that we really care about. And, and, and the original conversation, as I recall, was let's make a blog. Like it was going to be a, like a typical right. Substack, like not a podcast. It was going to be kind of like writing. Um, and over time, it's just damn taking time to write and think meaningfully takes a lot of time and effort and energy. And it was also like how much I, we felt like our well was a little too dry. Cause it was like such a, confusing moment in in history and at least for me I felt like there was so much going on in like the summer of 2020 um that I it was actually hard for me to write and we were kind of both gravitating to like well, maybe we should reach out to other people and just get other perspectives that can help us navigate through this uncertainty but I don't actually remember the exact pivot to podcasting like how it how it happened oh, to Dom oh I remember, remember? so yeah Go ahead. so because just, sorry, just, Kyle, kinda, is that okay? We're kind of like, please. I, I no, I love hearing this stuff. Uh, and I just want to jump in and just say it's you know funny how you guys can have different views of something that happened a year ago, and I think that's mm-hmm. a theme, right? It's like, uh, how can we you know see things differently and still come together? So keep going, yeah, but also. Vanessa has a record of being wrong about this. Well, <laughs> I have a flawed memory, but you know, no, but the, the it was not exciting, it was just Vanessa. I remember when when I finally got her started and we were, we were like discussing, so what could it be? What we'll be looking at. And then she just like threw in as a, as an aside and could it have a, uh, an audio component? And I was like, right. Cause I'm always into the podcasting. Right. Like, that's my, my and I was like, yeah, sure. Maybe we'll see. Um, and we were not really like actively thinking about doing a podcast. We were like at most, right. some of the, if, if we ever do an interview with somebody, we'll have maybe the recorded interview that will end up like turning into a story attached to that story. That's what we were thinking. And then I was just, just like, I don't know, I, I guess out of the excitement of like, yay, we have something and I like the name Uncertain. And so I started just emailing to a lot of people that I wanted to talk to. And one of them was Tomer Persico, who is mm-hmm. this uh, religion scholar um, for, who was at Berkeley at the time. And I, I, I just randomly wrote it like, would, would you like to come and we'll, we can argue about things? And he said like, happily, actually, I'm just about to release a new book. I would love to talk about this. And I was like, great, let's do it like tomorrow or something. I don't know. <laughs> and and we're, we're just like immediately just turned it into a recording. And then we're like, we'll, we'll record it and then we'll publish it. And then maybe we should just record it. And as literally as we were like deci- trying to decide what to do with Persico, I was already getting like some responses from a few other people that I reached out to and, and was just stacking up. And one of them was also Tom Holland, who I've been trying to get for an interview for like months, long before I had the Substack. I was like, I, I just reached out to him. I wanted to interview you about your new book. And then, you know, the, the, the uh, scheduling was a problem through for, it was even before the pandemic. That's how long 
it took me to to schedule it was like i don't know i don't remember the month like probably from november of uh, 2019 and so so it was like a while and suddenly i got a response from him i got a response from other people and we found ourselves vanessa and i with a weekend where we had like to record like five, three or four interviews oh, yeah. on one on one weekend and i was like holy crap we have we have we we can start a podcast with this and and that was it. It was like, like you know what? Fuck it. It's so much easier to record <laughs> conversations than transcribe them and then have to write an intro and then like turn right. it into a story and have things. Just, 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 just fucking have the conversation. I love it. it was, I love it. Yeah. And I think also like it, it really did scratch kind of an itch that maybe we didn't even know that we were itching for. But just this, this opportunity to reach out to people who are so interesting and have really just engaging conversations. I mean, and, and what's been interesting to me is that like a lot of times these conversations go on beyond the podcast. Like we've met up with some of the people who've come on our podcast. We've like, these conversations have continued in our like living room, um, which is always something that like Adam and I talk about a lot because we're roommates and something that, you know, bonded us as friends was that we believe really strongly in, in community and like having a sense of people around you that feels so hard to achieve in this, day and age and like especially in new york especially in new york adam in jerusalem had it i had it in santiago and so coming to new york it it just felt very much like unmoored i think and a let's see without like a core group of friends because i guess people are coming and going the city is hectic you know um and it's been interesting i think with the podcast we've actually had an opportunity to kind of start creating a a kind of virtual and new york-based network um of of really interesting people. And that's been, I don't know, for me, that's been something that I wasn't anticipating to come out of the podcast that I think right. is really cool. Right. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Um, I was listening to Matt Welch, Perestroika starts at home today. Uh, <laughs> and I love kind of the dialogue that you guys had back and forth. And I'd love to take the conversation a little bit in a different direction, just to propose the question to each of you. Uh, maybe Adam can start, but what, what role does the individual have to parse through information, to make their own informed decisions versus what role does, uh, whether it's the media, the government have, or to, to make sure that we're consuming the truth when uh, we all know that the right, the truth can be very subjective and uh, dependent on your perspective. So what role right. do you think? Yeah. Right. And the context of this from our conversation was I talking to my, Matt Welch, who is, I think, uh, editor at large, if I get the title right, um, at Reason Magazine, a lifelong libertarian and one of those amazing journalists. And like he has he has a, a you know a, in his brain a catalog of of everything from sixties LPs to to you know all the books about the Cold War that were published in the eighties. It's like he's he's one of those brilliant guys, and um um, but he's also extremely like. A true believer in in the in the power of of freedom to 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 lead individuals into the not I wouldn't say ideal situation but but to kind of like resolve things and that every any alternative to that is ultimately more more damage and more more pernicious than than just letting um, um, people you know have their own responsibility on on their actions and their consumption of information. Whereas I came from the perspective that we are currently in a struggle, like I think culturally, socially with our, with our media, we're like, we're in a, um, we're in, we're almost in conflict with our media because 
not not in the sense that the meat like you know that some you know right-wing conspiracy theories uh want to play it as if like the the the, the shadow with the illuminati running the media like they're trying to control you but simply in in the modes in of consumption that we have for media like social media and 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 just our smartphone there's something there that is 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 totally hacking and breaking our brains and and making it very difficult for us to not obsessively consume it but also making it incredibly more difficult to sift through and to in order to find the, through the the feeds and and find actual value and find truth in it and i think that this is something that at this scale at this degree we never had to face as 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 a civilization and to treat it as if it's just you know just another minor not minor but it just it's another natural evolution it's just like the printing press we now have a new technology and we just need to have a, a few hundred years of adoption but then we'll be fine we'll adapt and we'll be able to thrive off this technology that i think but not necessarily i think it could also completely derange not only our, our our media consumption habits but also our conversations with each other and make us more alienated make us more angry make us more anxious in ways that you're pretty concerned about this right uh, yeah no I don't I don't, I don't want I don't want to overstate it we're not going into a uh, tech apocalypse necessarily but I think we could end up in a in a much worse place than we started what do you think yeah, Vanessa I think, yeah I think it's like a shared a shared responsibility. I think as, as I recall from the Matt Welch conversation, I think Matt put a lot of onus on the individual, right? Like the individual really has to do their due diligence to find, you know, sources that are legitimate to, to not just believe crap, to like, to like change the channel when you're watching something that's clearly, you know, biased and, or, or, you know, not doing it's the work that it's supposed to do as journalism. But I think while all that is true, um, that's going to take a cultural shift. And I think there has to be some institutional shifts as well. So I think I think it's going to be it's going to have to come from journalists taking more responsibility and kind of outlets taking more responsibility for thinking through their business models and the approaches that they take and what what is being rewarded. Um, I, that, that I think is a huge part of this conversation, because you can't you media has to change its business model if we're going to actually have sustainable news sources that are legitimate and, you know, have, you know, real facts. Um, and I think there's going to have to be a push in education. I just like, I don't think nobody taught us in school how to think about what is a good source of information. What's a bad source of information. That seems like a pretty simple thing that one should incorporate into a curriculum. It doesn't seem like out of this world to me. Um, and then I think that that like tech, like there's tech has responsibility for this too. I think there's like a lot of being somewhat familiar with the tech industry. There's a lot going on in tech in terms of thinking through things like, you know, privacy by design, for example, like whenever you start a new product, you should be thinking about how you're embedding privacy from the beginning of the conception of the product and you shouldn't be tacking it on at the end. And I think tech in general is kind of going through this tumultuous period period where it has to think through what are the potential outcomes of the thing that we're creating and when tech interfaces with media and the way that it gets to individuals, that means that tech platforms, primarily social media platforms, but they need to be thinking about the way they're putting forth the information, what people are gravitating to, and again, how they're rewarding 
the content and the behavior. So I think all of these things kind of have to happen in concert. You, I don't think you can only put the onus on the individual. I totally agree. I think that's really well said. And I love how you kind of directed it towards education because growing up, I, I went to public school my whole life. Um, and I was just always sitting in my desk. Teacher tells you, you know, here's what's going to be on the test. You, what I used to say is regurgitate the information. Yeah. Um, and when I was 16, I had what many might call a, an awakening of sorts, uh, an opening of my mind. It began with uh, questioning my Catholic upbringing and starting to ask questions about things that are said in the Bible. Uh, that was during like a small group. And then that led me to just like basically the pendulum swung way out to like, I don't want to say specific conspiracies because there's so many <laughs> uncertainties with conspiracy, conspiracies, which I actually, um, that word gets uh, demonized un, unfairly sometimes. But the pendulum swung out. I was in my friend's faces telling them, you got to believe in this and this. And um, I became known as the conspiracy guy. And uh, went to college, grew up a little bit, 19, 20 years old. I didn't want to bring that same identity to a new social group. I wanted, I went 2,200 miles away from home to Indiana to get away from all of it. Um, not to, not that I created a bad reputation. I still had a great friend group and everything, but I wanted to start fresh. Um, and the pendulum started to swing back a little bit in the sense of how pushy I was about my opinions on other people. Um, and, and I'm just trying to kind of like, I bring this up because, you know, we were talking about how, and I think Adam, you had an awesome quote on the, on the Matt Welch episode. You said something like, um, technology is causing the emotional social conflugation, I think is the word you used, uh, that we're experiencing right now. Maybe that just, you know, came right off in, in stream of consciousness and you don't remember that, but, um, I love that. And, uh, at the same time, as my pendulum swung out, it came back naturally. And so I'm not as worried about people starting to believe in things that are too out there if they're not translating that to action in the real world. Like, you know, there's the, the cliche example of it uh, doesn't matter if someone believes the world is flat, but if they are creating a religion around which everybody has to believe it, otherwise, you know, whatever, then that's where the issue becomes or when you're pushing it on other people. So I guess what is to you a bigger or you know, where do you see the balance between the issue between people believing crazy things, which clearly happens, smart, intelligent people can get deranged, as you've said, um, but also good information can be unrightfully censored, as we've seen time and time again as well. And then you don't have access to stuff that might be just a little bit outside of the narrative. Think, for example, um, the Wuhan thing. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't know much about it, but one day it's like, this is no chance, this is a conspiracy, there's no chance this is true. Nine months later, the same news outlet is saying this is possible. So, I don't know, all that, all that rambling to... And many, many news outlets actually revise their previous... Or, like, like uh, crypto-edited some of their previous statements about it, which is, which is really, you know, ethically problematic. Right, they go back in time and change the website and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the same thing on the World Health Organization. Uh, they'll go and change web pages. And that type of stuff, for me, erodes my my uh trust in these institutions yeah yeah it's 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 a problem and the i mean it stems so much and actually i had a conversation yesterday with with batya about this but yeah mm. and we we interviewed and i think a lot of it stems from a combination of arrogance and uh insecurity and the sense that 
and, and you know how insecurity breeds more vanity. And I think there's something right now in the in 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 the media that that people who went into that world thinking that that this is just being there or being entered into the club um, imbues you with some authority over 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 you know analyzing society and and predict or at least having some uh, uh, expertise into into how politics works, how society evolves, what is true and what isn't. And then and then with like one event after the other realized how fragile that or, or non-existent, how, how fictitious that authority is from from Brexit to Trump to 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 uh, the, this cascade uh, during the pandemic of of of, of shattering uh, um, traditional authorities, they realized that you know it it doesn't work this way. Like you're the, just the, the the going into an institution and and absorbing its I wouldn't say biases necessarily, but its complacencies about the world doesn't make for good journalism. It makes for very smug and lazy journalism. Mm. But for a lot of people, it, it was it. I, if I'm there, if and I talk like those people, like the I'm you know I'm a I'm a 20 year old um, intern entering CNN or the New York Times, and I see how people talk there, and I I I, 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 I imitate it, and I start emulating their behavior and their and their and their thought patterns. Then I'm in. I'm part of that club. I mean that's 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 a bad thing. That's a bad thing. And the only way in which they, I think this, a new generation of journalists try to push against that was only insofar as they brought in a, too much academies into the workplace. And, and that, you know, we don't need to get in too much into the whole critical race theory discussion, unless, unless you want to, because actually I think critical race theory is, is, is an excellent theory. I mean, it's a worthwhile academic endeavor that I, that I, I spent I think uh, one of our intros, I think it was for our Moshe Sluhovsky uh, interview, America Rewrites Its Past, like trying to defend. I think like there is too, it's getting too much of a bad rap because of some of its abuses um, by people. But, but I think, but it's a great academic endeavor. But when you try to take it and then, and then because this is the thing that you've learned back in university and now try to cram it into the, the work of journalism, then, then you're doing a disservice both to journalism and to the theory, um, and I think that's that's the only the only way in which I can see that, broadly speaking, of course, that that people are trying to defy against the complacencies of the um, of those institutions, and and for the most part, they're actually trying to negotiate those complacencies with critical race theory or with the you know cri- like ac- academic critical theories, uh, neither of which really gives you, I think, a better understanding of of the way most of America thinks or the way that some of the certainly doesn't give you, for instance, a better perspective of international affairs and, and geopolitical realities about like China, for instance, and keeps you completely blind to the possibility that if say a lab leak happened in Wuhan, which we obviously don't know, but if it happened, then obviously the, in, just knowing the way that the, the, the communist party ha- uh, comports itself, Obviously, the response to it would be complete silencing of everybody involved. And just because for Americans, such a response is so unthinkable or to even think about it means that you're in some way being bigoted towards 
um, um, the Chinese government, which is absurd. How can you be bigoted to such uh, like a, a country that is larger than you, more in certain ways, more powerful than you, and 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 certainly has all uh, all the authoritarian capacity over its own um, denizens? So to to even think, have that thought that the the this is how they behaved is racist, is to or or bigoted, or to you know you're just thinking because because they're Chinese, then they're more nefarious. It's like no, it's because they're an authoritarian government that they're more nefarious. But anyway, that those type those patterns of thought are just completely screwing up our ability to have serious conversations about um, the world. And I hate I hate sorry I hate that cliche having conversations like this is like kind of like the lazy way to say trying to actually see the world for what it is and 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 run against people who disagree with you but uh, yeah but it's just like everybody says that we need to have conversations about this and i'm just i'm just tired of hearing it coming out of my own mouth <laughs> i mean i'll i'll echo a lot of what adam said and i think for me so this is something that like i was not as aware of or like uh, I, I just wasn't as, as aware of what was going on, I guess, um, before I started this podcast. So I am a left-leaning person. I'm very like oh, forthcoming about that on the podcast. I say I come from kind of like a liberal background and that is where like my, my people have been. And I guess I was, I was less clued in than Adam was about the ways that, um, a lot of mainstream media has got, has, is only speaking to people on the left in a way that is not only excluding people, but excluding narratives and excluding facts. Um, and that was something that I was, was not as attuned to until I started the podcast and started talking to other people and, and trying to like get and getting other perspectives. Um, I'll echo what Adam said about this, that this coupling of authority and insecurity. I think it's something that, um, Martin Gurry talks about very eloquently in our conversation with him. I recommend that episode because that that the the institutions that we have are still 20th century institutions in their ethos and their foundations. And they have not, they're not prepared for the 21st century. And they're not, they are, they are struggling and they are grasping onto their claim to authority in a way that clearly isn't resonating with people anymore. And they haven't yet figured out what's the 21st century like media institution, for example, going to look like. Um, and, and it's, and I agree with Adam in that it's coming, that, that reality is also coming up in heightened friction with this kind of project of, of justice, I guess. That's kind of, uh, kind of coming from the left, I would say broadly. And I think I'm incredibly sympathetic to this because it's a, about fucking time that we have like conversations about, justice in this conversation but it's also the that that objective is also kind of coming at the expense of open dialogue um i think it's it's kind of become that you're either on this team or you're not um and that attitude i think is ultimately destructive not just for our country but also for the the outcomes that people want who who are seeking greater justice of racial economic and everything so i think it's it's destructive for its own for its own purported desires as well as for our country as a whole i think that's right. a and trend I, uh, I see a lot too like things that proclaim to be liberal are Ill illiberal and yes, things that pro yeah. proclaim to be progressive can actually be uh censoring or silencing or something so yeah mm -hmm. go ahead yes. adam yeah you know, I, I i i actually want to respond to what he just said but first i 
I said I want to I want to retract or not retract, but I want to mitigate something that I, I said earlier. And I said that there that when you bring things like critical theory into journalism, it it does a disservice to both. And I don't I I don't fully believe that. I, I do want to say that I actually think that some there is a lot of worth in bringing act, like some of the thought of critical theory into journalism in the sense that it looks at um, historic patterns and 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 systemic um, 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 inequalities. And I think that to the extent that journalism was not looking into those things, it should have. And mm-hmm. this is actually a, a very important revolution, like yeah. of intellectual revolution that, that totally belongs in journalism and in the way that you're analyzing reality. So, so I, I want to, first of all, to clarify that. But maybe it's just not the end all be all is what I'm taking away. I mean, from- right, right. Exactly. So like there is no end all be all to anything. So anything mm-hmm. that becomes the end all be all of anything, it is by definition totalitarian. And that's a bad idea. This the, 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 when you were looking at only one goal and when one, you know, energy of activism to guide everything you do, then, then, then you are a proselytizer or a fanatic or a fundamentalist, but you're not, you're not doing journalism. Journalism, okay. you're supposed to be drawing on all your ability, like the, the tools you have to analyze reality and see how they interface. Sometimes maybe not even have an opinion about it at all. But I think like having an opinion as a journalist is, is very wise and important. But also be very clear about all the things you're doing and ideally not excluding any like available m- mechanics that you have to be thinking about the process and say like, yeah, I think this is one available way of seeing the world, but also look. This is a little more complex and, and, and things are not as like there, there is no just one authoritative narrative. Um, yeah. But but the, the thing that you said about the liberal being a liberal and progressive um, regressive, it's, it's just a trick of language. Right. Like this is so uh, like depends on first of all, depends on what you call progressive. The idea of progressive is 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 ancient um, people were you it's it's a, I, I've I think people were using that word at least from the late 19th century. So clearly like. I, I I don't know what they think ab- ab- about themselves and how how people who using the word today feel about people who've used it in in during the Woodrow Wilson administration in the early 20th century. Like, do they do they see kinship to them, or do they understand that this is the linguistic history of it, or not? It doesn't matter because, but that's just a, 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 a artifact of language. As is liberal, and the fact that we use liberal here very different than we use liberal in Europe. And I think my when I try to use the word liberalism, I, I I'm echoing i think the european concept of it which is just the more fundamental i hate saying classical liberalism because that's just it's grating on the tongue and again and, and a lot of people are abusing that phrase as well but that's i think what we mean like it's which is something that that prioritizes openness and and mm-hmm. conversation and we and, and thinking that there is a, a more potential for social thriving when things are are more open but both from in the perspective of markets and, and and government governance and and discourse um actually i don't know if you've read um ah god me and names me and names is terrible um jonathan rausch jonathan rausch's book the the kindly inquisitors it's a fantastic uh read to anyone who hasn't and he he really he wrote it i think in the late 90s as a response to some of the early runs of, of political correctness and he's describing the, the liberal model of the world more beautifully and more, I think, uh, incisively than, than anyone else. So I highly yeah. recommend it. This is something that actually I've, I, I've learned a lot about in the course of doing the podcast and that I've, I've actually found really interesting because, I, so I don't have as, 
I think Adam's education was much more well-rounded than, than mine was. And so I feel like for me, there's like certain like fundamentals that kind of, I kind of skipped and in the way, like some of this, this podcast is kind of starting to fill in those gaps. Like not, I'm not saying it's filled in all of them, but it's like starting to like sketch them in. And one of them is just like, why do we fight for a liberal democracy? And I know that that's, that's like, seems like such, I, I think I asked this in our first interview with Tomar Persico. And then yep. I, I know it's like a fundamental question, but I think so many of us take for granted the, that we live in a liberal democracy and don't fully unpack like what it means and why we have it and how, why so many people fought so hard to have it. And so it's something I press our guests on a lot. Like what is worth preserving? Like, why is, why do you think the liberal democracy is like the best system that we have, even if it's like never going to be the ideal system. And so I've been, I've gotten a lot of answers on that. And I actually do think it's like a fundamental question to be asking right now because, because it's at risk. Right. I think a lot of the actions of what's happening now in in media and conversation in politics is putting the liberal democratic project at risk. And I think unconsciously and unthinkingly, people aren't realizing that that's the potential outcome of where we're going. And for me, I think it's 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 an important thing to talk about, like why this system is the system we have and what's worth preserving about it. And how do we modify our behaviors and our conversations and our politics? in order to ensure that we don't, you know, throw away the ba- the baby with the bathwater, if you will. And at the, so and, and it's important because we were talking a lot about the the left because it's always so appealing because I think right. a lot of it comes, we like ripping oh, on our side. We like ripping <laughs> on our, like the side that we we grew up around, but right. it's so important that the this taste for illiberalism is clearly a bipartisan thing. It's clearly something right. in the moment. There is there is just an attraction towards the the authority and the, the, uh, authoritarianism, and I think this again, Martin Gurry describes this, explains this as the the failure of the 20th century institutions of liberal democracies to live up to their own promises um, in in the mind of the public, and their and, and the public rather than recognizing that the promises were overblown, but the system is still mm-hmm. perhaps the, the the best that we have go with well the system failed us completely we might as well get uh, the the uh, um, uh, an authority figure to take over and a, a story that I, I like telling that I, I will never forget this is actually still from the left but I but it's it's stuck in my mind and um you know I'm, I'm actually losing sleep over this sometimes <laughs> because to, to understand that we we have such people around and it was a, a really wealthy uh, German um, industrialist that I, I had dinner with once and he he in, in new york and we were talking about climate ch- oh, sorry we were talking about china and I, I i was saying that obviously there's a there's a problem with with chinese authoritarianism i'm not saying that we should go to war with it but this is but this is it's scary that its financial power is 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 actually proselytizing other countries to adopt some of its worst practices um and he said that's i'm not i'm not sure that i agree so like what do you mean well, and, and mind you, he's German, which I think adds an important layer to this. It says, well, there are things like climate change where we can see, and this was still when Trump was in office, we can see how how fickle democracy is, allowing people like Trump to take office and completely abrogate all the project to protect climate change. If we had a strong leader that could only take care of the common good of, in this case, climate change, then, then we'll be in a much better place. Look, China actually fights for climate change because it has one person in charge who knows what's important and takes care of it. And I was like, I, I, mm. I, I, I 
I mean, I, 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 I loved it. I was like, I, I, I loved having that, like, the taste of what it felt like to live in the Weimar Republic for a second. But <laughs> it, it's, it, I was like mind blown um, right. that, that he could be saying that with a straight face. Um, right. But yeah, but it's still, it's equally happening on the right. And, and you know, the, the talk of the week is Tucker Carlson going to Hungary to, um, <laughs> to, to like, to, to just like, you know, jerk off to the, to the, pictures of Viktor Orban there. And I was like, this is, this is also mind blowing that this has become yeah. the, 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 you know, the model for, for the new right. This is not, this is not a good thing. Like, I mean, there are many things that are beautiful in Hungary, namely the architecture. And there are some beautiful people there and there's, there's a lot of talent and art, but, um, but the Viktor Orban model is not one of those beautiful things. Not, not, not in the certainly not for anybody who has liberal values, but also right. he literally defines his democracy as an illiberal uh, government or a liberal. I don't know if he calls it democracy even, but an illiberal uh, whatever regime. Um, but also, also on the standards of the right, like Viktor Orban's government is a government of graft. It's venal. It, there is nothing there that that is more complex. That speaks conservative values. That speaks, really, that, 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 mm. yeah, it's just like wraps. Uh, venality with conservative values. This is yeah. not something that anybody who really cares about, I don't know, family values, community, um, 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 a more equitable society, which pr presumably the new right cares about now. None of this is exercised there. This is, mm. you know, kiss the ring and you'll get a job. This is, it's, it's jobbery and in, the, in the, the lamest kind combined with some some authoritarianism and, and strongman destruction of the media. But apparently for the right, for the new right, destroying, destroying old media institutions is really the, all, all that it's about. It's about owning the libs. And in, in, in sometimes in a very literal sense, just like owning the libs. And it's crazy to me that this is getting traction. Yeah, if, when, there's an analogy to the WWE wrestling. You know, it's like a the two-party system is basically a WWE wrestling match, purely scripted, made for theatrics. <laughs> yeah, I resonated a lot with that years ago, and it still sticks with me when I, when I personally, when I think about, um, when I think about like the voting system, I, you know, I imagine, you know, we're in this two. You have two choices, and there's a million different issues out there. And so my question is to what extent is the potential for change limited by the two-party system? I know one of the questions you guys ask, and I want to ask it as well. So here, start brewing on it. But you, you guys always ask people, what are the blind spots on the left and the right? And so I want to kind of like, you know, get your perspective on, can we continue this two-party system in the way it is? If you could wave a magic wand, what would your... Um, you know, what doing this podcast, talking to all these different people, what would you sort of say... Uh, are the limitations of the two-party system, and how would you change it? Yeah, I, I also like that you turned the the question on us. Actually, yeah, I'm going to let Adam. Adam, you should answer the two-party system because I don't have a strong. I know you've had arguments with my fiance on this multiple times, so I feel yeah. like you could answer that one, and then we should both answer the the blind spots question. Okay. Oh, so you want? I, I was going to do the, the opposite of order, but okay. But uh, the party system is so. Vanessa's fiance Zev, who we had on for the the episode you mentioned earlier, um, maybe it was. Uh, you know, off air, uh, freestyle, freestyle. Yeah. Um, he believes strongly in what you just suggested that, that existing within the framework of a two party system 
limits not only our, our option, but also our intellectual horizon. And then we end up thinking in, in binary terms. And that is a problem. I think there is some truth to that, but I think it could be easily overstated and, and is by, by people like, like um, Vanessa's lovely fiance. Because <laughs> I don't think you see any less binarism in places like, like Israel or, or, or Germany or France where you have multi-party systems. I think the tendency towards us versus them is just in human nature. And whatever ways or whatever um, you know, fault lines we use to delineate those differences will exist. It will be fine. We'll like, the, that narrative will, will, will find a way to emerge. And with mass, it's not even, it's post-mass media. When we're, mass media is industrialist media. We're talking about like social media where the entire conversation has been globalized, where we're, um, we were living, people in Israel using the terminology of American culture war to describe local politics. That's, we've completely eroded any like borderlines um, in the way that we think about the world. And, and, and to me, that means that we're, we're now kind of converging into a place where the, so much of the online world is going to be thinking about good and evil, right and wrong in the same terms. And I've been saying that a lot recently, that I think at least, at least speaking for Israel and Europe there in, in the U.S., we're going to a place where the two sides are the American left and the European right. We have the European style of nationalism with a flavor of authoritarianism, and we have the American left with the um, progressivism with a flavor of authoritarianism. And those are the two tribes that you can choose from. Um, so I don't think changing that two-party system will have any real no, so that's my answer. Blind spots. Uh, Vanessa, do you want to take the, the, the first go? Well, I'm I'm struggling because I have an answer for the left, but I don't know if I have a good one for the right yet. So <laughs> um, maybe if you go first, it'll okay. it'll jog some ideas. So for me, I think the um, well, the, the easy answer is they, they both have the blind spot that they don't see how similar they are or how much they 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 need each other and they the the worst of the or, or the there is mirror each other um but um for the left i think they have too much faith in expertise and theory and the the they, they don't see the flaw the human flaw inherent in expertise and in in, in theorizing and a, a great book that i've been reading recently is um darkness at noon that i um that i just love uh, tomer persco actually recommended it to me and it's it, it, written by arthur kessler and he describes the journey of uh, actual Soviet socialist um, who's being on trial, on, on, put on a show trial, um, accused falsely of trying to assassinate Stalin. But because he's one of the original authors of the Bolshevik revolution, he's putting everything, everything that he's going through, including the corruption of the state into logical terms and, and trying to fit it into his theory because he's so committed to, you know, the truth of logic. This is the inevitable end of our, of our theoretical understanding. And, and even if that means the destruction of my own body and of everybody who came before me in the name of that, you know, theoretical ideal, I accept it because it is the logical end. So it's fascinating. And I think you see a lot of that pathology in leftist thinking. Um, for the right, it is their, their blindness to, I think, uh, authority, like just seeing how how power 
in itself in its na most naked form is is addictive to them and that that distorts what they claim to be their values like they're sometimes in many cases you see how the the, the values of the right of sub are subservient to power itself and i think that to me explains a lot of the rise of trump hmm. oh that those were good ones yeah, um, you I, did a great job articulating both of those um sorry vanessa go ahead yeah no no um agree with that i mean i i'm still i think i'm still struggling on the right i think because i'm still like familiarizing myself with that world a little bit um and so i feel like i don't know if i can really like hit, put my finger on a blind spot that resonates for me on the right yet um but i will say for the left there's there's two that kind of are sticking out to me that i think are i guess kind of personal to me and like me recognizing my own blind spots as well i think the number one thing is a lack of self-awareness about the narrative that that is being pushed on the left um there's like a um a, an unawareness of how exclusive it actually is because it it couches itself often in the language of inclusivity um without really being aware of the ways in which it's actually it is actually excluding a lot of people and and shutting down conversation and and progress so I think that's like probably the, the first thing I'd say. And the second thing I'd say is there's actually, I don't think the left realizes how, um, how, how, how little, how little optimism it has. Like, I don't think it, it really has really come to grasp with how cynical it's become and kind of apocalyptic, I guess. Like this is something that's really struck me talking to conservatives and granted we, we've been talking to really like <laughs> thoughtful intellectual conservatives who don't, you know, who don't necessarily go the way of like that you think of when you think of the worst of the right right now. Um, but something that struck me in talking to them is that they're optimistic about certain things. They are, they take a step back and they think about how much good there is left in the country and, and in certain institutions. Um, and, and I think that orientation of, you know, there are like this positive outlook towards the, towards certain things that exist and that not everything is doomed and going to be terrible. Um, and like the world's ending tomorrow. Like I just, I hadn't really realized how ingrained that was in like in left leftist thinking. Um, and so it's been, for me, it's kind of been refreshing talking to people who aren't necessarily stuck in that. Like, and don't get me wrong. Climate change, I believe is hundred percent real and that we are kind of doomed if we don't get our shit together. Um, but at the same time, doesn't mean you have to go around the world with your with your framework of of everything being so negative minded there you can take the time to appreciate what is working well and what we have and what we've won i really like that perspective and if i if i can i want to ask you guys um what we did learn from this last year in 2020 um you know we there was a obviously a, an event that had a certain response to it and uh one of my concerns is that right now at least you know it's early August, um, that some of the lessons that I see that I think might be obvious, um, around shelter in place, um, around mm. taking kids out of school, things like that. Um, they weren't as effective maybe as we had hoped them to be at the beginning. And I, I've, I worry that we're, we've just basically not, um, learned what we could have from this past year. Do you, do you, 
think that that's the case? Or are you optimistic that we are going to be able to handle this uh, in a in a more ideal way next time or in the future? I don't know if we've learned our lessons. Um, I, again, I'm <laughs> I guess I'm defaulting to my old you know pessimism here, but I think it our response has been so fragmented and state to state and even city to city that maybe there'll be lessons learned on smaller scales. But I think across the U.S., I don't, I don't think we've formulated a response that we can rep like a positive response that, that will then be replicated. I am, I am unfortunately skeptical of that. What do you think, Adam? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't like, I don't like trying to prognosticate. Um, <laughs> I, these are just your opinions too. I, I don't mean yeah, to ask you to. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, but I'm trying to think. I do mm-hmm. think. I, I, I will. I will. You know. I'll steal away the question and 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 take into my my, you know, pet horse of please do authoritarianism <laughs> and just say that I, I do think that this is something that worries me. That mm-hmm. I whether or not we took all the right lessons that we should have, we definitely have taken some wrong lessons from mm. from. And I think one of those is is a, 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 an embrace of uh, how easy it is to curtail certain civil rights, and not how just not just how easy, but how necessary it is sometimes. And it's become much more accepted in in, in daily conversation to say, yeah, yeah, but it's it's you know it's for public health, so you should you should just take it. You should just like you know just tolerate like having. Um, um, it's circumscribed for you where you can can't go. You know, well, what's what's a big deal? Just like don't go to that ca- coffee shop. Just don't go there. But like, and I, I, you know, I don't think we are on on the march to China right now. But I do think that it's a problem. I, I agree, and you know, we've seen this uh, play out so many times, right? Just think about post two thousand one nine eleven. Uh, just the sentiment around. Uh, going to war that's now we look back 20 years like, oh, well, probably was not the best plan of action at the time. And I see things like um, things that are being thrown around casually around like mandatory vaccines, for example. And maybe we're going to get the algorithms going to listen to the transcription and censor this podcast just for saying that one word. I'm kidding. But uh, I I see that as a like a very uh, egregious um, like assault on on what I consider to be a critical freedom, which is the right to choose whether you want to uh, have a medical procedure or not. And, you know, for different people, I I just, I really value the individual's freedom to choose that. And I, I really, I guess, kind of agree with what you're saying, Vanessa and and Adam, where it's like, we are right now in this like heightened state of like, okay, there's emergency crisis. And this happens all the time. This is the machine, right? This is the war machine that sent us to every single war since uh, yellow journalism. I don't know if you've ever heard that term in the Spanish American war when um, William Hearst said to his photographer, you furnish the photos, I'll furnish the war. And so we've seen this thing happen over and over again. Uh, When the public is in a state of fear, policies are justified. And then after the fear dies down, we realize it's not such a big deal. Those policies are still in place and it's hard to unravel them by the nature of our democracy. So um, I guess I'm just asking like, do you, um, do you, so are you optimistic that like we're still going to have freedom in like five years? I guess that's my question. Like, 
are like, you're, we're not going to with China, but like, to me, podcasts like you guys, if, and open discussions, uh, a lot of what we've talked about around like the new media landscape are critical to preventing this, this trend from going in the authoritarian direction. I just firmly believe that. Um, and I wonder what you guys think, or if, if it is going to just naturally rebound or, um, yeah. I you, you, you know, you know, the, the cliche, the, I think it was, I think it's attributed to, is it to Ben Franklin, to whoever, whoever it is, it's attributed to the Republic, if you can keep it. The, uh-huh. the, this, this cliche is like, it's so, it's so true. I mean, well, obviously all, all the, the mythos of the American founding is based on, on the lessons of the Roman Republic. So you know that the loss of freedom depends on, 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 on the public. The loss of freedom is when the public loses the appetite for freedom. Because government is naturally going to continue to acquire power, right? Exactly. The, and government never wants you to have your freedom. That's not, it's not in the nature of government. Government wants to be paternalistic. And then you can argue whether that paternalism is good or bad. But it, it, it never wants you to just like, you know what? You know what I want? I want to be a leader that just sits back and doesn't do anything. and doesn't interfere and doesn't like, raise taxes. And like, just you just live your life and I'll just be a nominal leader. Like, that's not, that's not in the nature of power. Power wants to assert itself. Power wants to grow itself. Um, so what always scares me, as I keep going back to it, is, is the loss of appetite for asserting your own freedom and for protecting the freedom of your friends and your neighbors and and, and your country and your like fellow countrymen and women and you know whatever's in between. I I I I, I do not trust in you know establishment institutions to try to to protect that narrative. I do not I definitely don't trust corporate America who who for some reason has become kind of a hero on on the left during the Trump era because because Oh, look at all those sponsors who are leave, leaving like, um, um, you know, um, Ingram's, uh, the Ingram angle or the Tucker Carlson show. Uh, it's like, oh, so heroic. It's like, these are not, this is not, where, these are not institutions that are going to, you know, care if, if democracy is overturned tomorrow, you know. As long as they can keep making profit. Right? Exactly. I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm always running the scenario of, let's see, let's say that Trump ended up succeeding in stealing the election. I see them as I, I believe like they would have like right now they said like immediately after January 6th, they said we're not gonna give any more money to Republicans who supported the insurrection or whatever. I like if if the tables have turned and 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 Trump was remained in office, ma- managed a way to ma- maintain his power, they would have found a way to justify it to himself so that they can keep making money. As 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 you know, Orban's Hungary shows, like you can you can be very profitable in corporate or China for that matter. You can be you can make a lot of money under under certain forms of autocracies so definitely don't trust those institutions the only way to keep i think the value of freedom is through human to human interaction where you see the value in other people and you see how important it is for them to be independent and autonomous and with their own ideas and with their own like you know desires and dreams in the world and you want to protect that and you want things to not become homogenized and to be made in your image and I'm afraid that the, it takes us back to the Matt Welsh conversation, that the fact that we are constantly being separated by alienating devices and we're having less and less personal interactions is decreasing our, our, our desire for that. Yeah, I would echo that. I would also, I would say that the, the, it's very easy to get 
sucked into an hour uh, on scrolling on Instagram, on five hours on Netflix, it's very hard to choose to go out and mingle with people. I mean, especially in a pandemic, obviously, but like in, in general, and I mean, with my city's background, I mean, we've, we've literally carved it into our built environment. We've separated ourselves from each other. We don't necessarily have as many like plazas and shared gardens. And, like we don't run across each other as much anymore. And uh, I am worried that like the way that we've gone into our devices, so too will be echoed in our, in our cities and in our neighborhoods. Um, and I do think that that is incredibly problematic for, for the future. That said, I don't, I don't, I, I am, I am more optimistic on this score than on your previous question. I don't think, you know, there's like a five-year timeline in which we <laughs> descend into authoritarianism, but that's if I was 16 <laughs> years old, I would have told you like shit's yeah, in the sell your, tomorrow. Yeah, like, you know, get your money build out your of the bunker. bank. <laughs> You're saying like the the idea that you know scrolling in in the political like our political mindset right now is that getting angry on Twitter and and you know quote tweeting someone to 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 uh, slam them accounts in our mind to a political action and, and going out and meeting people doesn't. Mm. And I think it's exactly reversed. This is the most stultifying thing you can do scrolling on Twitter. Whereas actually just going out and having like, you know, like a beer with random people and just to have like, you know, striking conversation with random people at the bar and with like mm -hmm. the, the construction worker who's just finished his, his day and then and, and with the bartender and whoever, like that actually is much more politically valuable than, than the two hours you spend on Twitter today. I agree so much. Even if you don't talk about politics, I think just right. building relationships with different people uh, opens you up. And uh, yeah, I think that's fantastic. So we've, we've taken so much of your guys' time. I appreciate going over a little bit. I'm, uh, I, I'm just really excited about this uh, conversation. I've had a blast, fun, but Thank I want to ask. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, thank you. Oh, awesome. I'm glad you guys enjoyed. Hopefully my, uh, you know, one of the things I was concerned about coming into this, I'm like talking to like two seasoned vets over here. And uh, I was a business student, you know, I, all, all this stuff around journalism is self kind of taught, I would say. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm super passionate about it, but I don't have the, the background. So I appreciate you guys uh, entertaining my maybe somewhat uh, amateurish questions at times, but uh, you guys did an awesome job explaining some stuff. And I, I just, I think there's going to be just so much more progress in the conversations, the discussions I, uh, that, that you guys are having on your podcast. So keep, keep it up. But last question, sure. uh, if Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg dropped into your DMs tomorrow and said, Hey, you can take the Facebook headline across the world. Every single person on Facebook and Instagram, every single social media, whatever sees one message for the whole day. Like, what would you write to the world? I got it from Sam Harris, I believe. Not a, not a question I came up with. Did Sam Harris uh, answer it? But don't be too precious. I don't, think, <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember. It's always the interviewer who asks the hard questions yeah, yeah, and then yeah, won't yeah. answer them. That's what I do. Yeah. I don't know what I would say anyways. Maybe something like breathe. I, I, one of the things I'd say mm -hmm. is just breathe, right? Just take a big deep breath mm -hmm. and just... Yeah. I think that's a powerful thing I, by itself. I actually think that the country could use a lot of that. <laughs> okay. If ever, if ever there was a need for a chill pill, it's right now. Um, I don't know, like something like 
you're wrong and it's awesome. Ah, I love it. <laughs> love it. <laughs> it's fun to be wrong. I, I think fun that's to a be theme. wrong. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like the only thing that's coming to me is just what on because it's on the heels of our previous conversation, which is just like go outside, talk to somebody. <laughs> New. But it's not super pissy. Seriously. I don't think uh Mark would be would be super enthralled with the idea. So I'll have to I'll workshop that. Go outside, talk talk to someone, period. <laughs> New. Seriously. <laughs> right now. Both of, those, both of those are, are uh, better than whatever most people are probably going to see at the top of their feet. Delete so, your uh, Facebook, uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 what, what gave me ec- extra trouble with this is that there is nothing that gets me angrier than seeing Facebook trying to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Whenever, whenever I get a message that says, Adam, comma. Like, mm-hmm. It's oh. been five years since... I, shut up. Shut up. Do not, not talk to me. Not, yeah, <laughs> I hear you. I... I fucking hate that it's just it's such one of those like creepy creepy things that that the the corporate america has decided is is appealing and i i, I don't get it i don't get it i'll just wait till the robots are out just yeah right <laughs> right exactly <laughs> the turrets from portal like start <laughs> Hello. fantastic okay thank you thank you Kyle, Adam, so much. vanessa thank you guys so much and where uh where should we find you guys on instagram is the main spot and then also Substack, which i'm gonna disclose right now i have oh, not followed you it. guys there yet but i will today yeah i just listened on the yeah. apple podcast and um so i'm excited oh, yeah. to oh, dive deeper i mean yeah it's uh it's it's fine it's like wh- wherever you get your podcast we're uncertain things um the the Substack, if you prefer that method is uncertain.substack.com our 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 Twitter and and socials are uncertain pods. We are not we are not Twitter and Instagram animals. Like every once in a while, I have a friend who we had on the podcast, Ken Goshen, who who is an actual proper influencer. He's has amazing art, amazing art. I uh, and he keeps pushing me. You should you should do the Twitter and Instagram thing. Do the work. And I'm oh, man, I'm like, it's like pulling I'm teeth. I hate it. Adam's it's better just, than me. I it's hate like it. it's like. But I, but I can't this but, stuff, guys. You guys are great at the podcasting. So thank you. yeah, but it's just like so. Like, ex- don't expect some thrills in the in the socials. But but you should Let's still follow us. No thrills. Hundred percent. Yep. Cannot recommend the podcast enough. Um, again, guys, thank you so much for thank taking you so much, Kyle. Yeah, you and your purple background. You yep. Too. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you very soon. And come say hi if you're ever in New York. I I will. I shall. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things via the Adventure Creative Podcast. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because remember, you can make a difference too. Until next time, stay sane.